This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have a true immigration legend in our midst, founding partner in the law firm of KKTP, adjunct faculty member in immigration and nationality law at the University of Miami School of Law, named one of the world's 23 most highly regarded corporate immigration lawyers, and of course, the author of Kurzban's Immigration Law Sourcebook, which is widely acclaimed to be the definitive book on U.S. immigration law. Ira Kurzban, pleasure to have you on. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And of course, uh, joining us as well, we have EIG's Managing Director, Hiba Amber. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. We don't often receive many guests who have single-handedly changed the face of immigration law. So we would love to hear your story. Um, first, yes, I'm going to give a, a lot of praises throughout, so uh, <laughs> just have to take it. <laughs> but uh, first, can we talk about your start in immigration leading up to your seminal work sure. in representing Haitian immigrants in Miami? I'll be happy to answer the question that uh, everyone always asks me, how did I become an immigration lawyer? And the answer is, I had no intention of being an immigration lawyer. Uh, I graduated law school and uh, came to Florida to be a civil rights lawyer and a labor lawyer. And I spent uh, the first couple of years of my life uh, doing both of those things. Um, and then one day I was contacted by the National Council of Churches and the uh, Catholic Community Service Agency who had set up something called the Haitian Refugee Center in Miami. And they asked me as a civil rights lawyer, would I go down and um, uh, uh, look at what uh, the government was doing in regard to Haitians who were uh, coming into the United States. This was in the very late 70s. Haitians were coming by boat, not in large numbers, but they were still coming. Cubans were coming by boat. Cubans were treated very differently uh, because of US government foreign policy and because of the Cuban Refugee Adjustment Act. Uh, so I went down and I experienced my first what they called MASH hearing, which uh, Andrew, you probably don't even know about. It was uh, because it was something that was done years ago. Um, it, it was what they call multiple accelerated hearings. They would bring 30 people into a room. They'd ask them to raise their hands and uh, ask them if they wanted to be deported or not. And that was the hearing. And uh, I didn't know much about immigration law, but I knew there was something wrong with that. So uh, that kind of led to you know, one thing uh, to another. And uh, eventually we started to litigate cases on behalf of Haitians. We learned that the government had a Haitian program, which was designed to deport Haitians as fast as possible because they were getting pressure from the Miami community at the time. And um, we brought one suit after another. The first one was Haitian Refugee Center versus Civiletti. Uh, because the government was engaged in multiple hearings, um, trying to deprive people of the right to lawyers and so forth. Um, and that case uh, eventually led to a over 50 page decision by uh, James Lawrence King, uh, who was a Republican appointee, by the way, appointed by President Nixon. Uh, and uh, he just blasted the government saying that basically they were engaged in uh, nationality and race discrimination. We then went 
uh, to a whole series of cases. As a young lawyer, I was probably doing about 12 different major class action lawsuits uh, between the late 1970s until the 1990s. Some of those went to the Supreme Court, John V. Nelson, Haitian Refugee Center um, uh, versus McNary and Commissioner versus Gene. Those are three of the cases I argued in the Supreme Court. Um, and they were all cases designed to help large groups of people who were coming into the United States in various stages. And that's kind of how it began. From that transition, um, what were the, the factors or maybe the climate that led up to you thinking, you know what, maybe I should write a, a source book on all of immigration. So what, what brought you to that point to make that decision? Well, actually, I started teaching. And uh, the first uh, edition of the book, which was a very little, small book, uh, about 400 pages, uh, was my outline to teach my course uh, at, at the University of Miami School of Law. And at one point, I also taught at Nova University School of Law. Um, and, uh, you know, it just... <laughs> It's very difficult, I think, for younger lawyers to understand in those days, this was pre-computers. Imagine that, pre-smartphones. Uh, um, so when we had topics that we wanted to know something about, we kept them in files. And so we had drawers full of files, you know, a file on 212C, a file on voluntary departure, a file on uh, other forms of relief, on federal jurisdiction. So I decided it would be more efficient to put it in an outline and to keep it in an outline. And I used that to teach. And that's really how it started. The first edition uh, was issued in 1990 uh, by the American uh, Immigration Lawyers Association, the American Immigration Council. Uh, and you know, I always looked at the book as a way to try to help other lawyers. Um, that is, it wasn't, it wasn't designed to be an erudite scholarly treatise on immigration law. It was designed for lawyers who were actually practicing to find things because I, one, one vivid memory I have is uh, trying to navigate the indices of other books on immigration and they were just impossible to uh, navigate. For example, uh, in my book, I started uh, using L1 or H1 or something like that. In the uh, older editions of other books, you would have to first look up non-immigrant, then you'd have to look up multinational transferee before you ever figured out that that was an L1. So. <laughs> Uh, I just put in the book L1 and then had an index. And even today, the index is all done by hand. It's not computer generated, which means I have a team of people who, lawyers, uh, who come in and actually go through the index um, and find different things if we need to put in additional things. And they coordinate it with the previous edition. So everything is hand done. It's not just computer generated. And I think that's made a big difference and been very helpful for people. So I don't know, uh, I'm sure you get this feedback all the time, but your name is basically um, part of our daily vernacular. Uh, so it's very common <laughs> for attorneys to be 
you know, like, hey, do you have Curse Vans? Where's Curse Vans? Has anyone seen Curse Vans? <laughs> and this is, um, and, and I'm not exaggerating, a near daily occurrence. Uh, I'm sure people must, or not people, but rather, you know, immigration attorneys must say that to you um, from time to time, or have said that to you several times over the, the past years. Yes, uh, it, it's kind of humorous to me that, you know, I've become a noun instead of a <laughs> Yeah, a you person. have. <laughs> uh, a household name, so to speak. And, and it wasn't always like that. The, you know, the earlier editions of the book didn't have my name written on the front of it. So, um, uh, you know, they came up with that idea. I don't know, probably the fifth, sixth, seventh yeah. edition of the book. And, you know, as the years went on, the book got bigger and bigger because more and more, uh, you know, and immigration law actually got much more complex. I, I always tell people, if you look at the 1977 ACFR, which was the first one I used, uh, it was probably about 100 pages. It was a very thin little book. And, you know, if you look at ACFR now, of course, it's... Uh, over a thousand pages. And um, so, you know, immigration law grew in that 20, 30 year period enormously. Um, and I think the book reflects that, you know, so. Uh, and today we were just discussing what to do. We're gonna have two volumes for the next edition. And it looks like we may have to, cause it's just <laughs> too big, you know. My idea was originally to have a book that you could just carry to the court or carry to an interview. And the idea was to keep it in one volume. And, I, and I've been resistant for the last 30 years of changing that, but I think we've maxed out. So <laughs> I think it's likely that the next volume is gonna be- Is it bigger than the tax code yet? Not yet, we're getting there. <laughs> um, I, you know, if we had a video, I would show you, I have to my right here about five stacks of about a thousand pages each of cases and everything else that I have to read for the next edition. So it kind of forces me to read everything. And I do, I mean, every published decision, uh, every memo that comes out, every change in the policy manual, every new statute, uh, every new regulation, it's all in there. So it kind of forces me to be uh, as good a lawyer as I can be. And hopefully I can share that with others. So then what was the last administration like for you in terms of having to keep up with like the changes and, you know, reading everything? Because that was a very, very active four years from the perspective of an immigration attorney. That, that's the most uh, understatement <laughs> about the administration. You know, they made over a thousand changes in immigration law, whether it was changes to the forms, which are the equivalent of regulatory changes, or changes to statutes and regulations and so forth. So it was a nightmare. I mean, but it was a nightmare for all of us, right? It was a nightmare for the public. It was. Uh, uh, it was horrible in many, many, many respects. Um, and I try to document uh, all of it. Um, uh, there's a section in there on COVID and the changes that were brought as a result of COVID. But, you know, the changes are incredible and they're still changing it, which means, you know, in the next edition, we're going to have to um, make sure that um, 
you know, things are clear on some of these issues like public charge, right? I mean, they completely changed public charge. I, I spent hours and hours and hours, probably 30, 40 hours a week, just tracking everything that the Trump uh, Miller administration did on changing public charge. And, um, you know, now of course they're changing it back. So we'll have to change it back again. But, um, and the litigation, remember there are lots of new re uh, regulations, but then people sued and they got them enjoined. So what's the status now? The regulations are enjoined. Will they be enjoined, you know, for the next couple of years? Will the Biden administration withdraw them? Those are all issues uh, that I think, you know, hopefully we'll be able to resolve in the next edition, you know, to make it clearer for people. So what key topic or issue are you watching, particularly from the vantage point of potential litigation? All, all of them. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, look, uh, there there's litigation going on now about the consulates and their uh, inability to adjudicate cases. Uh, there is litigation continuing at the border. Uh, as you know, you know, uh, Biden has not revoked Title 42, uh, which is the provision that basically allows them just to throw people out at the border under the CDC regulations. So um, there's that litigation going on. Um, I do and have specialized for years, obviously, in litigation. So we're doing a good deal of litigation in the EB-5 area and uh, mandamus petitions on individual petitions uh, because the, the strategy, Miller's strategy and, and what they did, uh, I have to say, just from a tactical point, was brilliant, although horrible um, and morally bankrupt, but strategically it was brilliant. They knew exactly what to do. So they were doing things like denying uh, H-1Bs or L-1s or E-Visas or uh, other applications on the most frivolous grounds, recognizing that most people didn't have the financial resources to fight it. And so that most of them, uh, one way or another, they'd get, you know, Miller would get what he wanted because he knew that most people don't have the money to go into federal court and sue. So, you know, we're doing a lot of those kinds of cases. Uh, we're doing some pro bono cases as well uh, involving those issues. But, you know, to challenge the L denials that are just plain stupid, I mean, or H-1B denials, you know, that make no sense. You know, I remember uh, um, lawyers calling me and saying, you know, I've read this. Can you read this? It makes no sense. And I read and I said, yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> uh, they did it on purpose. They knew what they were doing and they just figured people won't sue them. So there's a, a lot of litigation across the board on asylum, on non-immigrant visas, on immigrant visa cases. Um, I think the big issue is going to be discretion because Miller in his, uh, 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 I think malevolent uh, view of everything understood quite well that you can't sue when the agency ultimately decides something on discretion. 
you know, you can sue them if they make a legal error or you can sue them if there's a factual error. But if they just say at the end of the day, we're exercising our discretion, like on adjustments of status now, you're seeing many cases, as I'm sure you probably have, where, you know, the person wasn't convicted of a crime or was convicted of a crime for which they're not inadmissible. And the government is saying, well, yeah, he's not inadmissible, but in the exercise of our discretion, we're not gonna grant him the benefit. So my hope is that the Biden administration will zero in on that because that's been used in a very malevolent way against immigrants to simply say, uh, it's our discretionary call and we're not giving them the benefit. So one question that I wanted to ask you was what your thoughts are about any potential changes to the minimum um, prevailing wages that uh, uh, companies must pay for purposes of sponsoring an H-1B. I know that there were you know, some, some rules that were proposed. Um, they were ultimately unsuccessful as a result of litigation. There are still some potential changes here on the horizon. I don't think that we have a clear cut answer. Um, do you think that this is something that has the potential to be like further litigated in the next year or so? I think it will be litigated and, and here's the reason. I think H-1Bs, unfortunately, like EB-5, uh, are those areas where there is strong bipartisan support, but negative bipartisan support. That is, I think there's a lot of Republicans and Democrats who've never really liked H-1Bs. Um, and I could go into the reasons, but I, I don't think they have. Um, and so I'm not so certain that Biden will reverse many of the uh, issues in regarding H-1Bs as I think some of my colleagues are. And, you know, uh, a number of years ago, I started an organization called Immigrants List, which is a a political action committee and a C4 organization. I spend a lot of my time these days talking to members of Congress directly, doing fundraisers for certain members who are pro-immigration. And, you know, I think they're very strong on asylum issues. They're very strong on deportation. They're very strong on due process. Um, I, I always have gotten the sense that they're not as committed on H-1Bs or are hostile to it. Uh, so I think to answer your question, yeah, I think they're gonna wind up in litigation. I think there will be changes made that immigration lawyers and employers will not necessarily be happy with. And Mr. Kurzban, I have to ask you one question in particular. Have you ever seen anything similar to the adjudication delays we're experiencing specifically with H4 EADs? No. And uh, I, I have a theory about all this, if you want to hear it. We certainly do. Um, Please. <laughs> uh, I believe that Miller and Trump were actually set, particularly if he won the second time, to completely end all immigration benefits maybe just cherry pick one or two, like, as I said, bread and circuses, you know, they were, they were gonna keep O visas and P visas to keep the masters happy with athletes and entertainers. But generally, I think they wanted to drive all benefits into the ground. I mean, look, we have a million 
applications for naturalization pending. The highest number we ever had before was probably around 200,000. And that was a big uproar requiring them to shift resources around. We have tens of thousands of applications in warehouses with the checks on them. Remember, USCIS is a self-funded agency. So even if you wanted to survive, you would rip the check off, cash it, and maybe put the application in a storage bin somewhere. No, or they didn't do somewhere, that. Yeah. Right. And the mm -hmm. reason why they were doing it is that I believe they wanted to drive the whole system into collapse, then turn around to Congress and say, it'll cost you billions of dollars, have Congress either give the money or cut back uh, services, which is what I think they wanted to do. So uh, I think uh, this is going to require litigation. You know, the issues that you're raising are going to require more and more litigation. Uh, and I think this administration, though, is committed to changing that. I mean, they're clearly committed to bring the, you know, Department of Homeland Security, in particular USCIS, uh, into compliance with some kind of semblance of having a normal system. But I don't think this was by accident. And I don't think it was just due to COVID. I think they intentionally did it. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I always think they should pay a price, but we'll see. Once they start investigating all of it, we'll see what happens. Right. So, I mean, you spoke about basically the frustrations and definitely after the last administration for immigration attorneys, what do you re recommend for them when they're dealing with obstacle after obstacle, blockade after blockade, um, these certain challenges and, and difficulties? How do they see themselves through periods like this? They, they, they should do what I do. I go out and run in the morning for like an hour. <laughs> That's a good note. Yes. <laughs> then, then you have a different attitude when you walk mm. in the office. Um, you know, I, I, look, uh, we're in a, uh, a field that I think in many respects is the best field to practice uh, law, period. And, uh, and it's because most law is fighting over money in the end. Uh, we are blessed with the fact that we every day get up and we're trying to help people. We're trying to make a living. We're trying to be successful. But, you know, the goal here is to actually help people become residents, become citizens, bring their families over. It's a very positive kind of practice. And, you know, it's tough. Uh, and it, it was tough even pre-Trump. And obviously Trump made it impossible. I think we'll go back to a more normal system. You know, it'll take a year or two years. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think all of us have to recognize that what we do is of such great benefit to so many people that we gotta hang tough and be in there and do as best a job as we can. And I always give this talk about uh, I always regarded immigration as a profession, not as a business. I think if I regarded it as a business, I would have had offices all over the world or whatever. But I always, I always regarded it as a profession. And I treat it like one would treat going to a doctor. You know, you need to know, you don't want to go to a doctor that decided, no, he doesn't have to read the latest 
um, you know, um, uh, medical journals, or he doesn't have to read the latest about uh, his profession, you expect him to know everything. And I think we have to have that attitude as immigration lawyers, because we're in one of the most complex fields of law. It's constantly changing. You have to constantly keep up. But that's your job. I mean, that's what that's what it means to be a professional. So when somebody comes in, um, you know, you're on top of the situation. You can give them good advice. Um, unfortunately, I see a lot of bad cases. I mean, I see people who either out of laziness or lack of knowledge just give people the wrong advice. And I, you know, and I think it's our obligation as professionals to be as good as we can be. Um, and that requires, you know, studying what's going on, but it requires a positive, Ian, answer your question, it requires a positive attitude, you know. Um, I've been doing this a very long time, and I have to tell you, every day I, uh, I practice, I love immigration law. I think it's inspiring. I think it's interesting. It's intellectually challenging. Um, I, think, I think if I did one even if I did one narrow area of immigration, I'd probably kill myself. But I, I'm very lucky that we do everything in our office, whether it's arguing in the Supreme Court or going to a deportation hearing or uh, going to uh, an interview. Um, so I always find it challenging and we're very fortunate that we get the complex cases. You know, we, it, it, from a financial point of view, it doesn't always work out well, but uh, from an intellectual point of view, it's it's a very, very interesting practice. So I feel very lucky about it. What I like to ask a lot of our guests, if you had a magic wand, if you were king for a day, right, um, what policies or policy would you recommend putting in place to help immigration become more welcoming to immigrants? And with that, what obstacles lay in that way? There's a couple of things. One is I, I think um, people in Congress and particularly Democrats, I think have not done a good job of articulating why immigration is so fundamental and so important to the United States. I mean, uh, look at Google, right? I mean, Sergey Sir, Brin was the child of refugees coming into the United States. He wasn't some PhD. He came in as a child. Uh, Steve Jobs was the child of a Middle Eastern immigrant. Um, so, you know, when you think about uh, the, the, the people who are running Pfizer and running uh, uh, the other companies who have developed these, they're all immigrants. Uh, I think almost the majority of the Fortune 500 companies are run by immigrants or the children of immigrants. And as a child of, of an immigrant myself, you know, when you're talking about what changes, my father left his country when he was 12 years old on his own. So I identify with those kids at the border. Uh, and I think this notion that somehow we can help all of those people because we're gonna be overrun is ridiculous. So one policy changes, uh, let's stop playing games about numbers. It's all political. The numbers are all political and I'll give you one example. In 1966, the United States government flew into the country, not uh, told people at the border they can come in. We went to Cuba 
we picked up 266,000 people and flew them into the United States from the port of Camarioca. So when people say, oh, there's 10,000 kids at the border, we have a crisis, or there's 20,000 kids or 50,000 kids, there's no crisis, it's all political. And this country has the capacity to take far more people than it, than it can. I mean, when you look at countries like Jordan, when you look at other countries in the Middle East who are taking far greater millions of people, far greater than a percentage of the population than we do, as the richest country in the world, we have the capacity to take many, many more people. So politically, um, you know, it reminds me in some sense of like Black Lives Matter changing the whole um, discussion. We need to start changing the discussion. We have to stop being afraid of the right wing crazies, many Republican crazies, but not only Republican, who, you know, talk about how we're overrun. It's nonsense. And we have to be out there. We have to be vocal. So that's the first change, a change in attitude, a change in perception, a change in what it means to be a great country, a welcoming country, because that's how we became great. I mean, we, you know, we became great because so many people came from so many other countries and saw America as this welcoming, you know, to, to use Reagan's phrase, that beacon on the hill, okay? Mm -hmm. That was the welcoming country and that's what we should be. And in terms of policies, specifically, that means changing things like how many people we admit uh, making it more uh, palatable for people to come in the country, easier to come in, faster, uh, how we bring in people of all levels, asylees, not just high-skilled people, although we should bring those in, a recognition in our laws that we need my, many more high-skilled people to come in, uh, ending the backlogs. I mean, for specific things, uh, you can look at what uh, we do at Immigrants Lists uh, uh, which is we have designated seven particular items that we regard as, you know, the most important items. And I'll tell you what they are. Eliminate the three and 10 year bar, allow adjustment of status in the United States without regard to being an overstay or work authorization. In other words, eliminating 245C2, C7 and C8 a waiver of all grounds of inadmissibility. Stop counting derivatives um, when we count family members. <laughs> derivatives meaning spouses and children. Stop adding additional visas. You know, if we stop counting women, uh, uh, spouses and children of the principal who are coming in, we'd have twice as many visas, maybe even more than we have now. There's no reason why they can't do that restore judicial review. So we don't have the kinds of problems that we had under Trump. Advance the registry date. Right now, if you came before 1972, uh, if you're a person of good moral character, you become a resident. We don't need in the United States all these complicated steps to become a, a, a resident, a path to citizenship. We don't need that. We have a law, it's called registry. If they make the registry date tomorrow, January 1st, 2020, anybody who's here of good moral character becomes a resident. It's just that simple. 
And we have advanced the registry date in 1948, 1972, and at other times. We need to advance that date. And then finally, the seventh thing that we have been talking about is the statute of limitations. We have a crazy system. Somebody makes a false statement 40 years ago. They're barred today. It's crazy. If you're a criminal, there are statute of limitations. In every civil matter, there's a statute of limitations. Only in immigration is there no statute of limitations. And you know, I can, I am sure you've experienced this. You know, I've had a client, I, I, and I'll give you just one example. A person was from another country. She uh, smoked marijuana and was convicted of possession of marijuana. Uh, when she was 18 years old, she's 43, she has three American citizen children and an, a US citizen husband. Since she had two marijuana possession convictions, she's permanently barred. There's no waiver. There's only a waiver for one under wow. 30 grams of marijuana. So it's that kind of thing. You know, it's just ludicrous that 30 years later, a person is barred, especially now when marijuana, of course, is legal in many, many states. But you can do that about anything. Somebody who stole a car when they were 20 years old and are now 60, okay? No statute of limitations, they're barred permanently. So those are the kinds of uh, specific statutory changes. But the last thing I'll say about this is you need to have a change in attitude among the people who work uh, at USCIS and at ICE and at CBP. And that's gonna be the most difficult challenge for the Biden administration, because those people have had it drilled into them the last four years that your job and your only job is to ferret out fraud. You have no other job. So you can spend two years looking through the person's DS-160 that they filed when they got a B-2 visa 20 years ago and look at what they said when they became a resident and then decide whether or not they're eligible for citizenship. And today you see when people apply for citizenship, they're told, oh, we think uh, you committed a false statement on your application when you became a resident. Not, therefore, we're not only denying you citizenship, we're putting you in deportation. That's the mentality today. That mentality has to change and that's a difficult thing to do. You know, one interesting thing um, that I noticed was missing from like your list that you um, referenced was there are some folks that are proponents of changing immigration courts to Article One courts. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? Um, I think it depends on what the Article One court looks like. I think, you know, one of the horrible things that happened under the Trump administration is that they packed intentionally the very worst of the immigration judges we had and put them on the Board of Immigration Appeals. People had 90 plus percent denial rates. I mean, it's not a secret. You know, they, there's six people were picked who had 90 plus denial rates in asylum for the board. Um, and so um, I think that does, the, you know, they, and picked many immigration judges who I think were picked because of their ideological point of view being anti-immigrant. So I think that what we really need to do is to have a different system. My only concern about an Article I court is remember, uh, and uh, to 
the traditional Article One court, you just have a judge, administrative law judge makes a decision, and then that's the final decision. There's no appeal administratively. You just go directly to the Court of Appeals. And I think if they have an Article One system where there is the equivalent of a Board of Immigration Appeals, it would be a lot better. It would also mean that the federal courts are not flooded with cases. And um, so, I, you know, I'm in favor of it, but I'm certainly in favor of getting rid of what we have now on the Board of Immigration Appeals, because I think uh, it was not a fair process. It was not a process designed to uh, have people who were balanced and fair and impartial, but to bring people in who had a particular ideological bent. So Article One Court would be an improvement. Thank you. Yes, we got the full blueprint <laughs> of action items. Um, uh, Ira, I, I absolutely appreciate you coming on. And um, just to get Thank you. just a little touch of your knowledge and insight. And oh, when is the next edition coming out? That's a good question. You know, we were just talking about that today. My inclination is over the last year, the uh, the Supreme Court's taken an unusual interest in immigration. You know, the seven cases. Uh, the last term there were like five or six cases. For many years, there were only one or two. So I think the next one's going to come out a little later after the Supreme Court's term has ended, which is July 1st. We used to time it to the AILA conference, but I think we're going to wait and just uh, um, uh, finish it. Uh, so I have all the Supreme Court cases. All right. So it'll probably be, I'd say August or July, probably July or August. Okay. I know EIG will have oh, them pre-ordered. 2022. 22. Okay. 22. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, final thoughts, Hiba? No, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. It really was a, an honor to meet you. Um, and, you know, it's going to be very different now when we go back to our day to day and we're yelling at each other asking where Kurzweil is because <laughs> now we have a reference point. So <laughs> it was definitely an honor to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you both. I really appreciate you giving me the time to talk. And I, I hope I haven't bored everybody or talked too long. Not at all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Not at all. <laughs> Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.